This is where the Holy Spirit led them. Sometimes when we're doing what God has called us to do, we're not going to be comfortable. This is a picture of my family right here. So that's my wife, Juliet. She's the one in the pink hoodie, in case you can't tell. The bigger girl there, that's my daughter, Cara. And she's just wonderful. The little one is not even three weeks old yet. And this is a moment that we captured when we came home from the hospital uh, just about two and a half weeks ago. My daughter, Cara, was napping. And so when we brought her downstairs from her nap, her sister, Abby, is now home. And she had never seen her outside of my wife's belly. So this was the moment when she met her. So this is what she did. She climbed up on the couch, gave her sister a little kiss on the forehead, and asked to hold her. And this was the picture that we took. Isn't that just precious and sweet? Now let me tell you my experience. <clears throat> so this, uh, this, this little girl right here is a handful. Um, she's a toddler. She's wonderful. And, and I just, I love her to death. But the experience of getting her home, the first one, was a little bit traumatic for me. So let me explain. Because the second one is awesome, but she was kind of a surprise to me um, at first. So this is what happened. My wife decided without any warning to just show me that she had a positive pregnancy test. And her expectation was for the same reaction that I had when she showed me a positive pregnancy test for Kara. But it was not the same reaction. My jaw hit the floor and I turned pale white as a ghost because my immediate thought was what it was like to have Kara. Now this is what happened. My wife has seizures, she has epilepsy. Now, one of the problems with that is her neurologist was concerned because we weren't sure if every time she's had a seizure, there's been a drop in blood pressure. We weren't sure if the drop in blood pressure was a cause for the seizure or an effect of the seizure. Meaning, when my wife was going to give birth to Kara, we did everything we could to avoid an epidural because an epidural drops blood pressure. And so we were there in the hospital for 30 hours with my wife in labor, screaming in pain. And here's the thing. I'm sitting there. This is awful as it is for her, which, by the way, physically doesn't compare, right? I can't. There's nothing I've ever been through that I can ever relate to. But on an emotional level, I'm sitting there. I'm holding the hand of my wife, trying to tell her to breathe because that's the only thing I know how to do. There's nothing I can do to take this pain away from her. I'm watching her scream and writhe in pain. She's sweating. One minute she's 100 degrees. The next minute she's freezing cold. And there's nothing I can do. And she just looks at me in pain like she's asking for help that I wish I could take from her. I can't. We haven't slept in three days. She's just been in pain this whole time. And nothing's progressing. Been in labor for 30 hours and nothing's happening. And 
we can't, or we're very afraid to take the pain medication because we don't want to see a seizure during labor. That would be catastrophic. So we're nervous. There's nothing I can do. We're bent out of shape. I'm completely anxious. I'm exhausted. Three days awake, no sleep, just dealing with pain. The person I love the most in the world is holding my hand, looking at me in pain, and there's nothing I can do to take it away. That's the experience. And then it comes to a point where they say, we have nothing is happening. The best thing we can do is a C-section. But that means we're going to have to give you an epidural. And so our fears are realized. We're going to have to do this thing that we're afraid to do. And so they take it in steps. They give her a small dose and slowly work it up to make sure that her blood pressure doesn't drop too quickly. And so that takes hours in order for the pain to go away and for her to go into a C-section. And then finally, we have this little bundle of joy. And now my wife is looking at me with a positive pregnancy test, and this is running through my mind. All of that stuff and the trauma that I remember from all of that, and I'm thinking, we're going to have to do this again. Now, not that I'm not excited to see this other little bundle of joy, but I'm thinking about all of the trauma and the experience that I went through, all of that, and I look at her and I said, are you really ready to do this again? And she goes, it wasn't that bad. So that's awesome. And But the second one, literally, we had a, a, a surgery scheduled. We were in this, came to the hospital within an hour. The baby was there, <laughs> and, and nothing was bad. But the point is, sometimes I had a plan, right? I had a plan. I thought I knew what was going on. I didn't realize that this unexpected thing was coming my way. And it shook me for a minute because I wasn't expecting it. And all I remembered was the pain. But in very short order, I also remembered the joy that came afterwards, and we got very excited about our second little bundle of joy. But the point is, sometimes plans don't go our way, and we get put in unexpected situations that cause some pain. And that is going to be a little bit about what we talk about today. So we're going to continue your journey I know you've been going through the book of Acts. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're going to finish up the book. We're starting in verse 16. But before we get there, I just want to point out some things that can help us kind of recognize where we are. So earlier on in chapter 16, you come across these things that uh, are interesting. Something maybe we don't expect when we're talking about the apostles and the early disciples and the early church. This happens in verse 6 of chapter 16. It says, When they had gone through the they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And then in verse 7 it says, After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So we're looking at Paul's ministry, right? Paul, the greatest evangelist who ever lived, is going through ministry. He has a desire to do something, and the Holy Spirit is preventing him. And we don't talk about this a lot, but isn't it interesting that God prevented him from doing something good? Paul had good intentions. He had a desire to preach the gospel in these areas, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing that because God had a different plan. 
he had something else in mind for Paul. Well, what was it? Well, in verse 9, it says, Paul had a vision and appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, Paul, after he had seen this vision, desired to go to Macedonia. So these other places that he had wanted to go, the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing it. But God gave him a vision of where to go of this man from Macedonia. Now, who is this man from Macedonia? Short answer, we don't know. But potential answer, possibility, is that the man from Macedonia could be Luke. Luke is the one writing the book of Acts. He's also the one who wrote the gospel of Luke. I know, surprise. But it could be him. And one of the reasons that it's very, it's highly potential that it is Luke is you notice that right after that, the language changes in the book. And we're going to see that when we pick up in verse 16, because this is what happens right away in verse 16. It says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl was possessed with a spirit of divination, uh, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So this one little word changes everything. We. Before the man from Macedonia and before Paul went to Macedonia, you always see Luke writing the word they because he's talking about a bunch of people, mostly Paul, but sometimes the other apostles and disciples, talking about them from narrative, from the stories that he was told, from the stories that he gathered by doing research, because he wasn't there. But now he is there. And that one little word shows us that Luke is now traveling with Paul. It says, now it happened as we went to prayer. And he's there now. And so Luke is now traveling with Paul. And they have come across a slave girl possessed by a demon. It says, this girl, in verse 17, followed Paul and us, not them, us, because Luke is there, and cried out, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, isn't it great that the Apostle Paul was greatly annoyed? Because it gives me permission to be annoyed, which is great because I get that way a lot. Now, Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, isn't it interesting? We look at this, it's hard because we're reading it in text. So what happens is this slave girl, this girl possessed by a demon, somehow has the ability to do some sort of soothsaying, future saying, psychic type stuff. And now she's actually saying something that is true. She's saying these men here, Paul, Timothy, Silas, Luke, they're there to preach the gospel. They're there to proclaim the way of salvation. She's saying these men are servants of God and they're here to proclaim salvation. So what she's saying is correct. What we lack by reading it is tone and context. We don't know how she's saying it, So we don't know if she's saying it in a mocking tone. We don't know if she's saying it in such a crazy way that it makes people connected to the gospel seem nuts. We don't know in what context she's saying it. 
whatever way it was, it was really annoying Paul. And Paul casts the spirit out of her. Now this causes a ruckus. Because when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now what we find out is this girl was a slave to two things. She was a slave to demons and a slave to masters who owned her. And now she had become useless to her masters because she can't do what made them money because the demon's gone. And so what do they do? They punish Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace and they take them to the police. On verse 20, it says, they brought, the men, they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. It's interesting that these guys are persecuted because they're Jews, not because they're Christians. That's just something interesting of note. Um, but that was the that was how they acted, because they're Jews, and they caused someone to not make money. They're being thrown to the magistrates. Now, this is what happened. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. So the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. That's important. Now, there's a couple of things that would happen when you were beaten by the magistrates. Sometimes it would be a flagellum, which is what Jesus was beaten with at the crucifixion, and sometimes it would be rods. Either way, they're designed to open the flesh and cause gashes in the flesh. So Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. So when they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fashioned their feet in the stocks. So now what's going on is these people, Paul and Silas, they're seated with stocks around their feet. If you've never, if you've ever seen the picture of like cartoons with the head through the hole and the hands in the hole, it's kind of like that, but around your feet. So you're seated and you can't move. And they're in the inner side of the prison. And they've been beaten with rods. Their flesh has been torn open. Now, when they had put their feet in stocks, they're there. They're just in prison, in the middle of the prison. Now, I want to go back to what we started with. Remember the Holy Spirit prevented them from going somewhere? Paul had a plan. And Paul's plan would have been a whole lot more comfortable than the plan God had for him. He probably wouldn't have been in jail with stocks on his feet and his flesh torn open by rods. Paul's plan was really nice. And it was still good. He still wanted to preach the gospel. But this is where they ended up. This is where the Holy Spirit led them. Sometimes when we're doing what God has called us to do, we're not going to be comfortable. Paul is not comfortable. Silas is not comfortable. But what is your attitude going to be when you're not in a comfortable place? Let's find out what Paul and Silas's attitude is. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Interesting. That's their attitude. And this reminds me of a couple of different moments in the Bible. It reminds me of Paul writing in Philippians. It's a very famous verse. Maybe you've heard it. Philippians 4.13 where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that verse gets misapplied sometimes, 
But if you read it in context, what you understand is Paul is saying, I've been wealthy, I've been poor, I've been respected, I've been, unrespe- I've been disrespected. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. I can do it because I have Christ. And Christ, my strength comes from Christ, not from my circumstance. And that's Paul's attitude right here. His circumstance didn't change his worship. And so God put him in an uncomfortable situation, and his attitude was to be grateful and to pray to God and to sing hymns. And everyone else in the prison who's looking at their self as a victim is hearing Paul and Silas treated the worst singing and praising. And that reminds me of Romans 8.28, another famous verse that says, And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What that verse does not say is that all things are going to be good. What it does say is those circumstances can be worked together for good for those who love God. And Paul and Silas show love to God in this moment. They praise him and show their love for him and their ability to look beyond their circumstance to understand how great the grace of God is. The Holy Spirit led them here. It led them to an uncomfortable place. Rather than being mad at God that they were uncomfortable, they reacted in praise. And this is what happens. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. But suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Freedom! But the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. This is the problem. This is the tension in the story. Because the prisoner, the guard, he was responsible for keeping the prisoners in prison. If any got free on his watch, he would receive the sentence of the prisoner who got free under Roman law. So he, there must be some prisoners who were sentenced to death because he's about to take the sentence on himself because he thinks they've gotten free. And we find out is the blessing here isn't freedom from the jail, but actually a chance to spread the gospel. In verse 28, it says, Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. I can't picture that in my head, a prison guard where all the doors are open and everyone can run free and they and all the prisoners go out to the prison guard and say, don't worry, we're still here. But that's Paul and Silas. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This guy's life was on the line, and his life was just saved by prisoners who were willing to stay in prison when the prison doors were opened. And so his gratefulness to them brings them directly to the feet of the prisoners. Now I can't help but picture myself the cross. Jesus, another innocent prisoner who was sentenced to death gets raised up on the cross on our behalf and it's when we bring our troubles to the feet of the cross that we get freed and this man goes to the feet of the prisoners Paul and Silas and he brought them out 
And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Throughout this whole time, the prison guard is the one who had all the power. But in this moment, and in the humility of Paul and Silas to stay there for the sake of the guard, he now bows at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Once we realize who really is in control, it's not us, it's God, we can come to the foot of the cross and ask this question, what must I do to be saved? And are you ready for Paul's long, drawn-out theological answer? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Easy. The gospel is complex, but extremely simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. So they spoke the word of Lord to him to him and to all who were in the house. So let's not get confused. When he says that you will be saved and your household, his whole household got to hear the gospel. It wasn't because this man got saved that suddenly everyone else was saved in his household. They all heard the gospel and they all responded. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now this is something else that's bothered me as a pastor for a long time. And there's not, I don't know that there's a whole lot I can do about it, but I certainly love the attitude in the first century that when people believed, they got baptized. We didn't wait and go, let's, let's wait a few weeks and uh, let's go through, let's figure out what your testimony is going to look like and then dunk you in the water. It was, no, you believed and you got baptized. And I loved that. Um, and so it would just be great if there was just a pond everywhere I went that I could just dunk people when they get saved. Because that's the attitude in the first century. Immediately, they were baptized. And I, I love that. Now, when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. And when... It was the day the magistrates sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. When all this good stuff has happened, this man and his family have been saved. They've been baptized. Uh, and now the Romans figure out what's going on and they let Paul and Silas go. And you think, here it is. Here's the moment where God steps in and he just, he leads them out of captivity. Well, not so much. And this is part of why I love Paul's personality so much. Because there's a big word there in verse 37 that starts out, but. It's a big old but. Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they put us out secretly. No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. So Paul's response is, no, absolutely not. You do not get to send us out secretly behind closed doors. You openly, in public, condemned and beat Roman citizens. Remember earlier when I said when they were beaten with rods, that was important? That's illegal to do to a Roman citizen under Roman law. 
they deserve a trial. And so when this moment comes along, Paul says, you cannot get rid of us secretly. You are wrong. And Paul's knowledge of Roman law allows him to challenge the magistrates. And so what happens? The officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Now they've been called out publicly. And so they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, uh, they encouraged them and departed. So what is the point of that little last piece there? They were free to go, and Paul could have just gone. But Paul wasn't concerned about his own safety. He could have gone. He would have been free to go. Nobody would have cared. Silas could have gone with him. Great. They get to go keep doing their work. But the reputation of the church in the city was tarnished because of what the Roman soldiers did to Paul and Silas. So Paul states, you're not allowed to get rid of us secretly. You must take us out publicly so that everyone in the city knows that the members of the church didn't do anything wrong. And so Paul saves the reputation of the church in the city so that further ministry can be done there. A lot. Pretty cool stuff. But all of this stems from the fact that Paul had a plan. And Paul's plan was a little more fun, a lot more comfortable, and probably felt a lot better. But God had a different one and prevented him from doing something good to do what was right. And God led them into an uncomfortable situation. And even though their plans changed, even though they didn't get what they wanted, they didn't get to go where they wanted to go, they still remained faithful in an uncomfortable situation. And they remained praising God in the midst of hard times. And that led to prisoners who were listening to what Paul and Silas were saying as they praised God. And a Roman soldier whose whole family got saved and baptized because God put them in that situation. And not only did a Roman soldier and his family get baptized and a whole bunch of prisoners hear the gospel, Paul got connected with Luke. And we have this record of the book of Acts from a firsthand account because Luke was there because Paul went to Macedonia. We wouldn't have that if God didn't cause Paul to go this uncomfortable route. And the church benefits now for centuries because of it. So just because times are hard or just because something is uncomfortable or difficult doesn't mean that God doesn't have you right where he needs you for something good to happen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the life that he led and the example that he gives us. God, I pray that we can live in the type of boldness that he had and to be willing to listen when you say no. Because not everything good that we want to do is necessarily your direction. I pray that we can listen to you even when it leads us down uncomfortable paths. 
Because the gospel still needs to be preached wherever you desire to take us to preach it. So God, I pray that you lead us and that we are willing and humble enough to listen to what you want. And help us to love you enough to be willing to be uncomfortable sometimes to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.